Hi, I'm Lana, and I'll be reading from 1 Samuel 18. It's on page 249 in the Black Bibles up the back. Oh, that's on the screen. Hmm. When David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan was bound to David in close friendship and loved him as much as he loved himself. Saul kept David with him from day on and did not let him return to his father's house. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as he loved himself. Then Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. David marched out with the army and was successful in everything Saul sent him to do. Saul put him in command of the fighting men, which pleased all the people and Saul's servants as well. As the troops were coming back, while David was returning from killing the Philistines, the women came from all the cities of Israel to meet King Saul, singing and dancing with tambourines and with shouts of joy, with three-stringed instruments. As they danced, the women sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Saul was furious and resented this song. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously from the day forward. The next day, an evil spirit sent from God came powerfully on Saul, and he began to rave inside the palace. David was playing the lyre as usual, but Saul was holding a spear, and he threw it thinking, I'll pin David to the wall. But David got away from him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. Therefore, Saul sent David away from him and made him commander over a thousand men. David led the troops and continued to be successful in all his activities because the Lord was with him. When Saul observed that David was very successful, he dreaded him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David because he was leading their troops. Saul told David, Here is my oldest daughter, Merib. I'll give her to you as a wife if you will be a warrior for me and fight the Lord's battles. But Saul was thinking, I do not need to raise a hand against him. Let the hand of the Philistines be against him. But David responded, Who am I and what is my family or my father's clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? When it was time for David, when it was time for Saul's daughter Merib to David, she was given to Adriel of Methalite as a wife. Now Saul's daughter Michelle loved David, and when it was reported to Saul, it pleased him. I'll give her to him, Saul thought, and she'll be a trap for him, and the hand of the Philistines will be against him. So Saul said to David a second time, you will now be my son-in-law. Saul ordered his servants, speak to David in private and tell him, look, the king is pleased with you, and his servants love you. Therefore, you should become the king's son-in-law. Saul's servants reported these words directly to David, but he replied, Is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law? I am a poor commoner. The servants reported back to Saul, these are the words David spoke. Then Saul said, say this to David, the king desires no other bride price except a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Actually, Saul intended to cause David's death at the hands of the Philistines. When the servants reported these terms to David, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. Before the wedding day arrived, David and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented them as full payment to the king and became his son-in-law. Then Saul gave his daughter 
Michelle to David as his wife. Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michelle loved him, and he became even more afraid of David. As a result, Saul was David's enemy from then on. Every time the Philistines' commanders came out to fight, David was more successful than all of Saul's officers, so his name became well known. Thanks, Lana. Well, good morning, everybody. My name's uh, Tim. I'm one of the ministers here. Uh, if uh, you're new here, I'd love to say good day to you after the service, but uh, for the moment, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump in. So let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we bow at your presence. Uh, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our teacher today, and may your greater glory be our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, well, when you understand somebody's background, then uh, you can see the things that have shaped their past, and hopefully you understand them uh, better as well. Uh, so at the moment, we know uh, the coronation of uh, King Charles is coming up, and you might not be a royalist, uh, but when you look at Harry and Meghan, uh, you can understand and feel for them a little bit where you understand their background. Can you imagine what it's like to be a young guy who has been in the spotlight uh, his whole life, always judged by other people, uh, and his mum was killed while she was running away uh, from the paparazzi? Or to be an American woman marrying into royalty and know that you'll always be judged because of your nationality, but also maybe because of your skin colour? We understand their background and maybe we're a little more uh, gentle when it comes to being our, our view of them and how they're dealing with this situation. Our context is king when it comes to understanding people. Uh, you see the sensitivity of Harry Potter as a character when you understand uh, that J.K. Rowling was a single mum who had to work so hard and really understood what it was to be cared for and loved by others. We understand it in our own lives as well. I'm sure we all had that grandma who you'd go over to her house when you're a kid and you'd notice that she'd use the same tea bag three or four times. And it's, it's only when you're driving home with your parents that mum and dad say, that's because she grew up in the Great Depression. She knew what it was like to have no tea. Context is king. And we know in the Bible that understanding the background of people really helps us as well. Uh, sometimes the point is there is no background. So if you read Genesis 14, there's a, a character called Melchizedek. And when they talk about him in Hebrews, the whole point is we don't know where he came from. We don't know where he went. He's a mystery. Uh, but we also know that there are other areas where we can find great context. Uh, the wonderful thing I enjoy about reading the book of Acts is that you can see uh, characters like Mark appear who wrote Mark's gospel, or you can see the things that Paul was doing when he's writing his letters that we then get to read later on. And of course, we know that really at the, the far end of the spectrum, the greatest context person is Jesus. Because the Bible speaks about Jesus from the very beginning. You can go all the way back to the first book in Genesis, and as they talk about the serpent crusher, we know they're talking about Jesus. As the prophets are prophesying, they're speaking about the world that they're in, but they're also looking forward to the Messiah. And we see many of the great characters in the Bible who are like a, a prefiguring, an anticipation, a shadow of Jesus. But when it comes to context, the uh, Bible character that is the second most mentioned uh, is King David. 
Old Testament and New, he's considered the greatest of Israel's kings, a man after God's own heart, and he is like a shadow of Jesus, the greatest king. And so over term two, we'll be taking a closer look at David's reign as it appears in the book of 2 Samuel. But over these two holiday weeks, we've been looking at his origin story, looking a little bit at his context and his background. If we can understand a little bit of what shaped him as a person, then maybe we're going to have a better insight into the decisions he makes, but also the things he doesn't do in the future. Now, if you're a keen bean, you're getting ready for this new series, that there are some great areas we can get more context. David wrote over 73 of the Psalms in the book of Psalms. And so we can read some of these stories and we can understand the emotional kind of stuff that he poured out so that we understand who he is and what he's about. Or we could turn to the book of Ruth, which is David's great-grandma, and we can understand some of the family context from which he comes from. But today we're going to take a closer look at him from the moment he was anointed, that is when he was set aside for kingship, forward to the relationship with King Saul as it spirals down. And really we're going to see it's a story of two trajectories. One is going up and the other is going in the opposite direction. Well, when we finished last week, uh, David had had uh, oil poured over his head. He'd been anointed as the next king of Israel. And you might be forgiven for assuming uh, he's told that this is going to be his role. And so surely straight after that, he's going to step into that role. But actually what we find out at the back end of chapter 16, if you have your Bibles in front of you, you could look at it. uh, David's first job was actually to be a physical Spotify list for Saul. (coughs) Saul was overtaken with an evil spirit. And so he called for someone who could play the lyre for him and and hopefully there was somebody who could soothe his soul. And David is that man. And now what what I want you to do is just put a mental reminder pin at that moment that David's role and goal is to bring comfort and relief to Saul. And then we're going to come back to that a little bit later. After this narrative little bit in uh, chapter 16, we have one of the most famous chapters uh, in the Old Testament, particularly if you like to give kids talks, and Jeff did a wonderful job today. You have the story of David and Goliath. Uh, If you ever wanted a clear sign of two different trajectories, uh, this is the moment. Do you remember what God said to Samuel last uh, week when Samuel was looking at uh, David's seven older brothers? He says, humans see whatever is visible but the Lord sees the heart. And while we could explore all kinds of things in this story of David and Goliath, there's a lot of things going on. One of the really clear things that shines through is the reality of the visible versus the invisible, what is in the heart. Saul's facing the the Philistine army uh, on one side of the valley. They've all lined up on the other side of the valley are the Israelites, and they come up with a decision that was not uncommon. They say, rather than all of us fighting and dying, you send out your best man and we'll send out our best man, and this is the way we can deal with it. Uh, But that all starts to look like a bad idea uh, when a man over nine foot tall walks out called Goliath of Gath. His armor alone weighs 60 kilos and the the head of his spear weighs 7 kilos. This man is massive and he is strong and powerful. He's a physically intimidating bloke. But the question is, who's really standing in front of the Israelite army? What Saul and the Israelite soldiers see as a scary physical specimen. He's powerful, he's intimidating. 
what they see is the outward appearance of real power and real authority. But when David arrives, he's just a, a young shepherd. He's just carrying some food for his, his brothers. What he sees is the heart of the matter. Uh, it doesn't matter if David is, uh, if Goliath, sorry, is nine feet tall or 90 feet tall. Uh, in the end, uh, all it is is a person standing up against God's chosen people. It's a creature who is standing up against the creator who is for Israel. This is why David is so confident. On outward appearances, a, a giant trained soldier versus a young shepherd is not a good match. But the reality is it's a mere man taking on God's anointed. And that's a different story. Again, once David approaches Saul and he says he's willing to fight, we're reminded how Saul just doesn't get it. This is why his trajectory is going in this direction. In chapter 17, verse 33, he says, You can't fight this Philistine. You're just a youth and he's been a warrior since he was young. And verses later, when they finally agree, Okay, David, you can be the one who goes out. We see that Saul tries to dress him up and actually make him look externally or outwardly powerful. Verses, verse 38. <clears throat> then Saul had his own military clothes put on David. He put on a bronze helmet on his head and he put him in all of his armor. Now, as a, a brief aside, uh, what an ironic moment we have here. Uh, in just a few minutes time, we're going to see that Saul is absolutely unwilling to give up his kingship. And yet in this moment, he's willing to take a teenage kid and dress him up as if he is the king. He is essentially abdicating his own position as the head of Israel, sending up a child in his armor to go and do his battle. So Saul gives David all of the external trappings of power, but David shrugs everything off and says, well, I'm going to go out the way God has made me with a sling in my hand. If Saul is perfectly clear that he sees the outward appearance, David is equally clear as he stands before Goliath that he really understands the heart of things. That's one of my favorite little kind of jokey moments in the Old Testament when uh, a Goliath says, "What am, am I a dog that you come at me with a stick? Essentially, I'm going to treat David like a dog would a branch in his teeth. And David's reply is one of the most chilling and clear understandings of who God is and what is going on that I can imagine. Today, the Lord will hand you over to me. Today, I'll strike you down. Remove your head and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's and he will hand you over to us. And David, or more accurately, God, is the one who is victorious on that day. Saul could only see the surface of what was going on. Uh, but David saw the heart of it. Uh, this isn't Israel's battle, it's God's battle. And David's confidence is not that he has a trick up his sleeve and that the, the message of this is that even when we're small, we can do great things. It is that God is faithful to his promises and God will look after his people. If I had a whole extra sermon, we could really think about that, what it means for us to know that we have the God of everybody and everything who is there in our corner as well. But what we see instead in this uh, uh, chapter is that there are, are two big ways that we can respond to this kind of victory. What does it mean for Israel? Uh, the first way people often respond to victory is they understand that a victory for my people is a victory for me as well. 
Uh, so when they had uh, VJ Day, that is a victory over Japan in World War II, uh, it was something that was celebrated uh, by everybody. Because it doesn't matter whether or not you are on the front lines fighting or if you are at the home effort back at home or if you were somebody who was just on, uh, uh, you know, sitting around uh, twiddling your thumbs. Uh, when World War II was brought to an end, people understood that this was a celebration for everybody. And so everybody got in on it. Uh, but the second way that we often respond to victory is by choosing to personalize it. If somebody else has had a victory, even if it's good for me, somehow that actually detracts from who I am. I can't celebrate somebody else if it makes me feel like I'm diminished in some way. Uh, one of the best ever podcasts uh, that I've listened to is by a, a, a podcast called uh, This American Life. And they did an episode on the Japanese and the American car industries. Uh, it was fascinating. It doesn't sound fascinating, but it really was. Uh, and one of the, to me, one of the most interesting things is they said, uh, in the Japanese system, uh, no matter who you are in that kind of system, part of a team, if you are sweeping the floors, if you come up with an idea, you share that idea, and if it works out, everybody celebrates and everybody is rewarded. Because they said, we're in this together, and what we care about is making a good car at the end. And so every good thing is good for everybody. But by comparison, they said, you have the American car industry where they say, I, I used to be sweeping the floors and now I'm one or two tiers up. And so I don't want anybody under me to do good something because if they do good, it makes me look bad. Why didn't I come up with that idea? And so the idea in the American industry was you squash it, you hide it, you make sure that anybody beneath you is belittled so nobody ever finds out about their great things. Two very different ideas of what victory looks like. If it's good, then it's good for all of us versus if it's good for them, then that means it has to be bad for me. And at the beginning of chapter 18, we see both responses, but probably in the wrong order. Because we see the good response, and it's not from Saul, it's from his son Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan is the guy who has the most to lose in a great sense. Uh, he's the son of Saul. Uh, he, people might be anticipating that he is the one who's going to take over from his father. But as he sees David and he knows that uh, God has anointed David, he celebrates because he sees him doing good things. And it's the beginning of a deep and powerful and meaningful relationship between the two as friends. It's clear that Jonathan's aware that God is at work in and through David, and so he wants to affirm him as much as possible. He doesn't see a jealousy, but rather affirmation. So in verse 5, we're told that with Jonathan's support, David marches out with the army and was successful in everything Saul sent him to do. Saul put him in command of the fighting men, which pleased all of the people and Saul's servants as well. It's a win-win situation because if Israel is doing well, then God's people should celebrate. But the problem comes with Saul's response to the victory. We see it at verse 6. As the troops were coming back, when David was returning from killing the Philistine, the women came out from all of the cities of Israel to meet King Saul, singing and dancing with tambourines with shouts of joy and three-stringed instruments. As they danced, the women sang, Saul has killed his thousands and David's his tens of thousands. Saul was so happy because he knew he'd made some mistakes in the past, but victory over the Philistines was awesome. David had worked out well, and since Saul was the one who actually gave him that authority to fight Goliath, that meant Saul looked good as well. 
But of course, that's not what it says, does it? Instead, it says Saul was furious and resented this song. They have just had a major victory over their great competitors. And instead of joy, he feels fury. They credited tens of thousands to David, but only credited me with thousands. What more could he have but the kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. Saul's response to victory is not unlike Saul's response to Goliath. All he sees is the surface level. If somebody else is rising up in reputation, then that means I must be dropping down in reputation. Any celebration of David can only be a loss of celebration for me. God has already told Saul that he's been rejected as king of Israel, but here Saul himself becomes that active ingredient in his own demise. Do you remember the pin we put in a little bit earlier as uh, uh, David was the one playing the lyre? Well, here we see how clear and how important that little story is because the very man who had brought soothing to Saul, uh, Saul's soul, say that three times quickly, the very man who Saul himself had tried to dress up in kingly armor, the very man who had dispatched the giant enemy that Saul feared most, this man, rather than being the object of love and hope, look what he has done for me, becomes the object of fear and loathing. This fear of missing out that somehow this was about his reputation was alive and well in Saul's life. You can imagine what might have been going through his head. How can God love this man when he's rejected me? One of my all-time favorite sayings that I reflect on often is that comparison is the thief of joy. When we compare ourselves to others, we lose perspective. Uh, I was uh, walking in the Blue Mountains a couple of years ago. I was uh, uh, with my family. It was a sunny day. We're on the edge of the valley looking down. There are clouds in the air. We're on holidays and so there's sushi later on in the day. Life was so good. Uh, then I checked my Facebook and I saw a picture from a, uh, an old schoolmate of mine and he was flying a helicopter that he'd rented uh, through the middle of the Megalong Valley. And when I looked up, I could actually see the helicopter. And in that moment, all of the joy, all of the sense of fun that I was happening leached out and all I felt was resentment. I was having a great time. Uh, life was good, but when I compared it to somebody else and something else that I might like to do, it all disappeared. And it took me probably the rest of that walk to actually sort of realign my head. Saul knew that he'd lost God's blessing in kingship but he still could have made the most of the situation he was in. He was still the king. Israel was a successful nation. People were still dancing and celebrating his kingship. But instead, his actions really bring about his downfall. When he compares himself to David, he says, I'm not happy as long as that person is getting more celebration than me. Comparison robs him of joy and will rob him of the kingdom. And so we see Saul actually respond in three angry ways in chapter 18. Now, firstly, David comes to bring soothing. He comes with the lyre in hand and instead he sent a spear from Saul. Uh, it's an odd little passage where you might wonder uh, why it meant it's mentioned in chapter 16 out of the middle of nowhere that, uh, that David is a, is a good musician. But you see it here because it makes that trajectory much clearer. Saul, in uh, verse 10 of chapter 18, is affected by an evil spirit. 
but he understands how we understand how dramatic the change in soul is when the person who is there to care for him, to bring him a deep sense of, of, of comfort and joy, is the very one that he tries to spear against a wall. And so we're told in verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David and had left Saul. His second response is, well, if I can't spear him myself, uh, maybe I can use somebody else as the sort of spear. I can outsource the solution, and he does that by sending David to the battlefront. But again, if you want to understand just how far Saul has moved in the wrong direction and David is moving in the right direction, uh, this is it. Uh, What a surface view to think, well, if I put this person to the battlefront, this is actually going to deal with the problem. Because rather than putting him in danger, what Saul does is he puts David into a position to show just how much God is caring for him and how God is at work through David. He continues to have success more and more. And the response is twofold. Firstly, verse 15, Saul's fear moves to dread. If he can do this, what else can he do? But also, verse 16, all of Israel and Judah loved David because he was leading their troops and he was doing it well. But Saul's third great act is possibly the grossest. And that is he decides that he can weaponize his daughters as a means of bringing out somebody else's downfall. Uh, Firstly, we have Merab, his oldest daughter. He offers her as David's wife, and the idea is simple. Uh, If he's part of our family, then uh, I can send him out to do whatever I want, and then hopefully he'll die. You can see he tries to dress it up in a theological way. He wants to make it sound like it's godly. You'll be doing the Lord's battles. But meanwhile, he's thinking, I don't need to raise a hand against him. Let the hand of the Philistines be against him. But here we see Saul's duplicity come up against David's humility. David doesn't consider himself worthy of even marrying into this family. And so instead, Merab is married off to a bloke called Adriel, the the Maholathite. Uh, Finally, Saul agrees uh, with another daughter, uh, Michal, who's already in love with David. And again, David sees himself as unworthy, but Saul uh, pushes it, he presses it. But it's not just enough to have him fighting against the Philistines. Uh, The way to really bring about David's demise is to create a situation uh, where the Philistines not only are uh, upset against him, but they actively hate him. Go out, kill 100 Philistines, and then desecrate their bodies. What a disgusting thing that he asked David to desecrate the bodies uh, by doing the very thing that is a sign of God's covenant love for his people. Uh, That is to uh, circumcise these dead men. And yet even with all of these machinations, David manages to exceed Saul's expectations and he doubles the bridal price. Uh, Just like Joseph and his brothers, uh, many chapters uh, earlier in the Bible, uh, what uh, man uh, intended for evil, uh, God uses for good as David is shown to be a greater and greater leader and a greater warrior. Now, before we finish up by making sense of that, I also want to comment briefly about Saul's treatment of his daughters. One jarring aspect of the Old Testament is that uh, as we're reading these historical narratives, uh, we can be looking for the narrator to come in and explain the bad things that are happening, uh, but often they don't make any comment. Uh, We just hear about a king treating his his daughters as if they're pawns that they can move around. Uh, Sometimes the challenge of these narratives is that the judgment on the actions we're looking for is something that actually comes out in the story itself. The narrator says uh, nothing overt about it. 
So in the case of Merab, the first daughter, Saul uses it to try and bring about his own ends. Uh, but it doesn't work. She gets married off. And then we could find out in 2 Samuel 21 uh, that Merab's line ends uh, because uh, her children are used as a blood debt against something that Saul has done. Uh, as for Michal, she gets treated as a political pawn between her husband David and her father Saul. And we're going to see as that gets messier and messier, a couple of chapters later, uh, David is on the run and he's hiding and uh, Saul is going to marry off uh, his daughter to somebody else. So she's going to have two husbands. Now, David will go on to marry a number of other women. He'll have affairs with even more women. And part of what we'll see in David's story is the hurt and the destruction and the pain and the trouble uh, that comes from his uh, thoughtless attitude toward women. Uh, At the end of May, we're going to see what starts as a love story here uh, ends with uh, Michal despising David in her heart. And a relationship that could have borne great things for God's kingdom will end up being fruitless, both relationally and in terms of progeny. But in the meantime, the narrative just lets these things play them out, themselves out. And what we're left with is just this battle and we have to work out what does it mean. I want to briefly suggest just a couple of things as we finish up. Firstly, we live in a very different age to David. God's not sending a prophet to Orange to declare that somebody here in OEC is going to be the next king or queen. But while we don't have the expectation of the kind of special relationship that David has, we actually have something exponentially greater. Listen with me to what the words of Matthew verse chapter 13 says. It says, Blessed are your eyes because they do see and your ears because they do hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see the things that you see, but didn't see them. To hear the things that you hear, but didn't hear them. As 1 Samuel comes to a close, Saul will try and kill David. It won't work out. And in the end, Saul will lose his own life. Dying in the most undignified manner. While David leans further and further into the reality that every good thing he has, he has because God is in control and that God's providential care is there for him. How much more should we be aware of God's goodness for us? Because not only has he just sent us a human king, but he sent his son, the great forever king, who lived and died and rose again. Culturally, we can feel often like maybe we're in, in more of a soul position. It feels like uh, for the Christian world, that its trajectory is going down in, uh, in this direction as uh, people uh, contest some of the basic elements of what our Christian faith is, uh, as we find parts of the church shrinking, uh, as we feel like maybe we're not in control of things in the way that we should be and we don't actually have a, a voice in the public sphere. Uh, but this is a moment where we need to remember that God is in control, uh, that the world does look bigger and scary and beyond our capacity, Uh, But the God who was faithful to David is the God who was faithful to his people throughout the Bible and he's the God who is faithful to us as well. And so, friends, we want to be bold and confident. Uh, Our boldness is not because we're a big church. Our boldness is not because we have our great building or because we've done all of the PTC subjects, but because we know that we have a God who has the victory We know that we have a God who is in control and we know that we have a God who has great things in store for Orange 
and for the world beyond. Let's thank him for that now briefly in prayer. Let's bow our heads. Uh, Lord, uh, we thank you that you uh, cared for your son, David. Uh, We look forward to seeing uh, how uh, this uh, origin story plays out uh, in his later life as we look through to Samuel. Uh, But we pray also, Lord, that we might have boldness and confidence uh, because we know that we have a God who saves and that through this, Lord, that you would continue to be at work in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.